right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Awesome. Excellent, excellent, excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. And um, uh, if, you, if you're a guest, I just hope you enjoy this evening. I hope that um, whatever prompted you to come to church tonight, um, that God will reward you for that and bless you in some way that, that somehow maybe you'll grow closer to him. Maybe, maybe you came in this room, you don't even know if he exists, and that's totally cool uh, because he will reveal himself to those whose hearts really want to know. And that's kind of what's happened to all of us. We just started trying to learn about Jesus and our hearts began to change and we fell in love with him and we began to understand that this is much more than just some religion. It's, it's about a relationship and it's about our lives being changed. And the weird thing is we didn't do it. It's happening to us and through us and it's the craziest thing. So every week we just come back trying to understand it more. And we at Remnant believe that, that every word in God's book, his Bible, the, the ancient manuscripts that have been handed down from person to person to person, that every word is literally from God to us. And that it represents the truth. And so every week we come here, we make sure that we are standing under the truth, not trying to stand over it, making it say what we want it to say. Because often what happens is we take God's word and we try to change it to what we would have written if we were God. God doesn't really allow us to do that. His word is true and he is who he says he is and he's going to do what he said he was going to do. And, and one of the things that he told us was that there would be a day when Jesus would come back for his church, for his bride. And last week we talked about that. We talked about where in the Bible do we get this idea of a rapture? Where, where, where does that come from? And how crazy is that? But yet how very real it is. And so if you missed last week, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to it online and really begin to process. But last week we talked about the rapture and we talked about how it was a key core concept in God's redemption, his plan for us. And it's such a key part of who we are that, that it's considered part of the, our blessed hope. It's something that we look forward to. But almost since the moment we begin to understand there was a rapture, we begin to ask questions. How long do we have to wait? When will the rapture happen? Are we going to go through the tribulation or is it going to happen afterwards? Are we going to be taken to heaven before all this stuff happens? Are we going to be taken in the middle, maybe afterwards? I mean, how does all this play out? And so what I want to do tonight is I want to begin to discuss and to sort of answer the question of when do I think that we'll be going home? When do I think the believing will be leaving? And to do that, I want to go through an overview first. So I'm going to ask them to put up a slide. And I want us to spend a few minutes because I need to make sure that we all sort of have this framework through which we can discuss what's going to happen. The Bible talks about an age of the Old Testament times. That was a time before Jesus was here. The believers in the Messiah, the one to come, were called uh, saints, Old Testament saints. When Jesus died and was resurrected and sent his Holy Spirit to earth, we entered what the Bible uh, through the book of Daniel calls the church age. It's a time in which we don't know how long it is, but it's a time in which because the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God is taking the message to Gentiles. That would be us. And during that time, we're given an opportunity to share that message, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and to move forward. The Bible says there will be a time when the church age comes to an end. 
And when that age comes to an end, God turns his focus back to Israel, back to the Jewish people during a time of tribulation. We know from the Bible that tribulation will last seven years. We know the last three and a half years are worse than the first three and a half. And we know that at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns to defeat Satan and lead us into what's called a thousand year millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan, who has been bound, will be unbound for a short time. And thereafter, we will all, uh, those who um, are uh, with Jesus, will enter into eternity. Now, I don't expect you to remember all this. Because we're going to go over it over and over. (laughs) But for now, we just need to have that framework. It's basically, we're living in the church age. There'll be a moment when that stops. The tribulation will come. At the end of the tribulation, there'll be a millennial kingdom. So there are three groups of people in the Bible who get resurrected. Three different groups of believers. There are the Old Testament saints who believed in the Messiah to come. They lived here before Jesus. We, some of them were resurrected when Jesus was resurrected. If you go back and read, the Bible will tell you that when Jesus was resurrected, there were people who came out of tombs and appeared in Jerusalem. A foreshadowing of things to come. Old Testament saints like Abraham and David and and Joseph and Jeremiah and Daniel and everybody else in the Old Testament, they have died. Their spirits are with Jesus in heaven. Their bodies are entombed. They are Old Testament saints. Then there are those who lived after Jesus died on the cross. People like us who accepted him as their savior and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they're living during the church age as believers. They've been spiritually reborn. They are eternal people having a spiritual, a human experience. They are called church age believers. Their spirit when they die is in heaven. Uh, Their bodies will be resurrected at one time uh, with Jesus. And then there are going to be people who do not accept Christ during the church age, but accept Christ during the tribulation time. And they're called tribulation saints. And many of them will be martyred during the tribulation. And don't worry, we're going to go through all this. Okay, I'm just trying to set this up for you. Now it's important to understand that the moment we die as believers, our soul is instantly in heaven with Jesus. That's true for everybody. Old Testament saints, church age believers, tribulation martyrs, and those who don't trust Jesus, their spirit is in hell. Bible's clear. While our souls are in heaven, we all, each three groups, are going to receive our perfected, glorified, resurrected bodies at different times. Okay? So, um, I don't know if you can see that that well. Um, But we know that when Jesus was resurrected, there were some saints that were resurrected. We know that when Jesus uh, comes back at the rapture, those who are on earth will be raptured. Those who've died as believers will be raptured. They will be given their glorified bodies at that time. The Old Testament saints, however, won't receive their glorified body till the final second coming of Christ. Okay? So the church age people at the rapture, that would be you and me, the moment we're raptured in the twinkling of an eye, when our spirit goes to be with God, we'll be given our glorified bodies. We'll meet Jesus in the cloud. We are his bride. We are his people. 
And there will be a time of distress like has never been seen before. And at that time, the Bible tells us in Daniel that every person whose name is written in the book, that those who are asleep in the dirt, they will rise at the, when Jesus comes back. Those Old Testament saints, they will come back and they will receive their body at that time. At the end of the tribulation, we'll enter what's called a millennial kingdom. And we're going to go into that in great detail later. The millennial kingdom will be the home for all believers of all time. Everybody will be there. You won't have to ask David what he thought. He'll be there. You go talk to him. It'll be incredible. So as we look at this, we continue to look through, and I know it's complicated, and I'm not trying to get you to understand all of it. I just want to give us a framework so I can talk about the rapture and the concept of the rapture. People have been debating the timing of the rapture almost since the moment Jesus ascended to the Mount of Olives and the angel said he'll be coming back. While they were gazing into heaven, the, the angel said, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus that you saw leave, he will return one day in the same way that you saw him go to heaven. They, they didn't know when. But they sure were full of joy because they realized that Jesus wasn't dead, that he resurrected, and that they were, he was coming back. But they were real curious about when that would happen. Even when Jesus was here, the disciples had asked him, can you tell us when these things are going to happen? And then when Jesus revealed the revelation to John, everybody began to wonder, when is this incredible thing, these things that are in Revelation, what will be the timing of that? How's that going to happen? And tonight we join that discussion. When will that happen? When will the church be raptured? Will we go through any or all of the tribulation? Will will we leave mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib? When will we be leaving? And this isn't just some kind of ivory tower debate. There's a great deal at stake here. As believers, God wants us to be ready for what's coming. That's why all the signs are here, right? We talked about it last week. Why does God even tell us this stuff's going to happen? Because he wants us to be ready. So if the rapture occurs in our lifetime, and I believe it could, will we be here to see the Antichrist? Will we be forced to decide whether to take the mark of the beast? Will you witness the carnage of God's wrath being poured out on the earth? Or will you be in heaven during that time, fellowshipping with Jesus, having the greatest time of your life? Will we be here for none or half or all of the tribulation? It's an important question. It's also a sobering question. There are three main views of the timing of the rapture. When it comes to that, everybody agrees that believers are exempt from the wrath of God. Okay? We're going to talk about that in a a little bit. Passage after passage after passage in the Bible says, I will spare you from my wrath. God promises believers he'll spare us from his wrath. So pre-tribulation people who believe that the rapture will occur before the tribulation believe that we will not experience God's wrath because we will be out of here. Mid-tribulation period, think that we're going we're gonna to experience the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but that God will somehow supernaturally protect those who are believers, just like he did those who were the believers that were in Egypt when the plagues came. 
And that in the mid-tribulation, he will take us home before the great tribulation, before it gets really bad. Post-tribulation people believe that we will be raptured uh, a moment before Jesus returns after the tribulation. That the tribulation will come, we will go up to meet Jesus in the clouds, we will make a quick U-turn and come right back down with Jesus at the second coming, and they combine those two events. So those are the three main views that we see. And they all agree that we are exempt from the wrath of God. If we are here during the tribulation, everybody agrees that we are somehow protected from the wrath of God. It's based on passages including like 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Pre-tribbers believe that the rapture will occur right before the tribulation and that well, God will remove us from the entire thing. So with that introduction, I want to spend the rest of the night sharing with you why I believe that the rapture is going to be pre-tribulation. Now, every concept of the rapture, pre, mid, post, there's a, there's a partial where some people get raptured, some don't. There's a, there's a 75% tribulation. All those, there's all sorts of options. And no matter which one you hold, they all have strengths and weaknesses. Because it's, it's not simple in the Bible. But in my opinion, the scriptural evidence for pre-trib best supports the purpose, the mission, and the, and the calling of God. And it has the fewest drawbacks. So I want to cover some of the reasons why I believe Jesus will return for us prior to the tribulation. The first one has to do with the church in the book of Revelation. Okay? The Greek word for church in the Bible is ecclesia. It occurs 20 times in the book of Revelation. Okay, it's the word that is used to talk about all of us, the global church. Revelation 1 through 3 mentions the church 19 times. In fact, Jesus addresses the churches specifically in Revelation 1 through 3. But starting in chapter 4, the word ecclesia disappears. It's kind of weird. It's been mentioned 19 times, and all of a sudden it stops. There's an abrupt silence about the church for the next 15 chapters of Revelation. You won't find the word. It's interesting that those chapters, chapters 4 through 18, are the most detailed description of the tribulation. So when the Bible, when Revelation starts talking about tribulation, you see a disappearance of the word church from the discussion. The Apostle John is lifted up to heaven and he's transported into the future where he sees visions of the end of days. For 15 chapters, John watches and describes everything that he sees on earth during that time. Odd, right? John, the one who is the loving disciple, who cares the most about the believers, doesn't mention the believers at all during the tribulation. He doesn't look down and talk about how they are being protected supernaturally. He doesn't talk about them at all for 15 straight chapters. Not one mention of the church. So you would expect that the role of the church during that time would be critical to understanding. 
I mean, you would expect that God's people on earth, if we were here, that John would talk about us and what our role is and how we were there to point people home and how the Holy Spirit was working through us during the most tribulation times ever in the history of mankind, and there's no mention of it. You think he would talk about his loved ones were so protected from the things that were occurring, just like was described when Egypt went through theirs and God spoke about how the Jewish people were protected because of the blood of the Lamb. We don't see that in Revelation. Do you know when the church is mentioned again? Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, the next time the church is mentioned, we are a bride. Jesus' bride is always the church. Note that when the church is finally mentioned again, she's described as a bride returning to earth with her glorious bridegroom. She and the church cannot return to earth unless they've left. In fact, this verse tells us that she's been there for a while because not only is she returning, she has prepared herself. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Past tense. And the bride has made herself ready. Past tense. It was granted her to clothe herself with the finest linens, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now immediately after this passage, Jesus is the rider on the white horse who returns to earth for the second coming. Okay, so right before the Jesus returns to earth, the Bible tells us the marriage of the Lamb has happened. I've never seen a marriage yet that went very well if the bride wasn't there. (laughs) And so what we read into that is, wow, the bride, the church, must be in heaven during that time. During those 14 chapters or 15 chapters, we must be in heaven because we're not mentioned on earth. And somehow, by the time we are mentioned, we've been prepared for the wedding. And and we have a groom, and we are the bride. And now we're returning to earth with our groom for the end time, for Jesus' final return. So let's talk about what the Bible indicates that we'll be doing while the tribulation is going on once we're raptured to heaven. Bible tells us that the first event after the raptured church will participate in a judgment by God. That the moment we're raptured, we will be in front of the throne of God and we will receive a judgment. It's called uh, the judgment of the just. And it's a judgment where we will be given rewards for the things that we've done. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven. But the day we're raptured, I don't know if it's the day or not, but soon after we're raptured, we will be in front of the judgment seat of Christ and he will reward us for the things we're done. We'll be receiving crowns. The Bible talks about how believers who get to heaven who've done things, the crown of righteousness, and and we'll receive crowns. We will be judged by God because of the blood of Jesus as righteous, as justified. We will be given, we we'll already have our glorified bodies, we will be given white linen to signify that we are now pure. We are the bride of Christ. The second event is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The feast celebrates the union, the marriage of Christ's bride, His church, with Jesus Himself. 
And then the third event is that we will prepare ourselves to return with him to earth to defeat Satan. That event is called the second coming. So how has she prepared herself? How has the bride prepared herself? Well, she's clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice that those clothes were granted to her. The Bible says they were rewarded to her, suggesting that she has already faced judgment and her deeds are now determined as righteous. So she has been given the righteous clothes by God. She is, because of that, able to marry the holy groom. She's wearing the righteous deeds of the saints. This implies the church has not only been in heaven with Jesus during the tribulation, but that they're there long enough to have their deeds evaluated, to receive a clothing of white linen, and to be prepared to be married, to go through the marriage supper, the wedding, and to return to earth with Jesus as his army. So beginning in Revelation chapter 4, as the seals are broken and the trumpets and the bowls are poured out on God's wrath, there is no mention of followers of Jesus on earth. And when the tribulation is over, Jesus returns with his bride. Again, it's very difficult to return with somebody who hasn't come to you. And I believe the church is not mentioned during the tribulation because we are raptured prior to it. While the tribulation is going on here, we will be getting our glorified bodies. We'll be getting the, the clothes of righteousness. We'll be receiving our crown. We'll sit through the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll be ready and able to return with our groom to earth to defeat Satan. Now, to be fair, while there's no mention of the global church, Ecclesia, during those chapters, there is mention in those chapters of saints. They're called tribulation saints. And it's clear that those people who are tribulation saints come to know Jesus after the rapture. They become believers during the tribulation. It's going to happen. Many of our families will be those people. Because it's going to take the rapture to get them to actually realize what just happened. And once they do, then they're going to, I hope, have to believe. So if the church is not present on earth during the tribulation, is there any mention of us being in heaven during that time? I'm glad you asked. In Revelation, as the judgments are going on between chapter 4 and chapter 19, we see repetitively the mention of 24 elders at the throne of Jesus. And I believe the 24 elders mentioned 12 times in Revelation 4 through 19, represent the church in heaven during the tribulation. These 24 elders are pictured by John. They are already in heaven. They have been judged. They have been rewarded. And they have been enthroned. They are clothed in white. And they have received crowns. And they are worshiping the Lamb. Revelation 4.4, 4. around the throne were 24 elders, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So who are these 24 elders? And where did they come from? 
People over the years have speculated that it's one of four groups. Maybe they're angels. Maybe the 24 elders represent the nation of Israel. Maybe the 24 elders represent all believers of all time. Or maybe those 24 elders represent the raptured church. Let me share with you why I believe they are representing the church. I believe the 24 elders who are at the throne of God during the tribulation time are our representatives of the church that's been raptured. The first thing is they're called elders. The word is presbyteros. In fact, children often joke that only 24 Presbyterians are going to get to heaven. But the word is presbyteros. It's a word that is used in the New Testament to define and represent those who are to represent the church before God. That's why churches have elders. So in Revelation, we find a description of elders who are already enthroned, crowned, dressed in righteousness, dressed in the linens of white. And in addition to their title, I think there's several other reasons why they represent the church. The second is their number. There are 24 of them. The Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, those priests who were assigned to the temple, there were over a thousand of them who were priests who had work in the temple over their lifetime. Everybody born in the tribe, the Leviticus, was, was in the temple serving at some point. Since not all of them could be in the temple at the same time, the priesthood was divided into 24 groups who served into the temple on a rotating basis. Every day in the temple of God on earth, there were 24 elders who were representing all the people in front of the throne of Christ. They were in the temple and and they were worshiping. And the other thing... That's interesting is that in the temple on earth, they were never enthroned. They were only allowed to stand. They were busy all the time trying to take the sacrifices, trying to make the altar, the incense. They were never sitting still. There were 20 of them moving all the time, 24. And now we find 24 elders who are in heaven before the throne and they're seated just like Jesus was. And they have received crowns of righteousness. The third thing, and the third reason I believe they represent the church is their position. They're on thrones. Christ promised that the church would be enthroned in heaven. Revelation 3.19. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. The people that the Bible talks about who will be on thrones are representatives of the church. The next reason why I believe those elders represent the church is they have crowns. Crowns are promised to New Testament believers. We will receive them at the judgment seat, which occurs at the rapture. Scripture mentions five crowns in the New Testament. The imperishable crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life, and the crown of rejoicing. The Bible is specific that crowns are for those who are in Christ. Those who have surrendered to Christ. Those who during the church age surrendered to Jesus Christ and believed in Him and are His bride. 
And from a pre-tribulation perspective, the Old Testament saints haven't been resurrected yet. They'll be resurrected at the second coming. So we begin to ask, who could these people be? Who could these 24 people represent? They're going to have glorified bodies. They're going to be enthroned. They're going to be wearing white to represent righteousness through Christ. They are going to receive crowns for what they've done. In fact, they're going to throw their crowns down in front of the throne of Jesus because truthfully, whatever we do on earth here is nothing compared to what he's already done. These 24 elders have received their crowns. They're not angels. Angels never receive crowns. Not the Old Testament saints and they're not the Jewish nation of Israel. The other reason is their clothing. It's the white clothing. Elders are wearing the identical clothing of church-age believers. And they've received that clothing because they've been given crowns at the judgment seat. In addition, in Revelation, the Bible clearly distinguishes these 24 from angels. Revelation 5.11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. So to sum it up, the reason I believe that we are raptured pre-trib, the very first reason is there's no mention of us here on earth during the chapters of the tribulation, but I do believe there's mention of the church, the bride, the wedding, all those things before Jesus returns, and the bride has to be there if that's going to happen. The next reason I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is what I've called the rapture versus the return. The New Testament describes two facets of the second coming of Christ. In the first action, he will come for his church to escort her to his father's house. Just like a Jewish wedding ceremony. The groom comes after he's made the room. He comes and gets the bride. There's a great celebration. And he takes her to the Father's house. John 14, 3. And I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 Thus we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the first part of the second coming of Christ is Jesus coming for his bride, for the church. The second part is Jesus returning with his church. He will return to judge his enemies and establish his kingdom on earth and defeat Satan. And he will return with his church, Zechariah 14.3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of a battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives and lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. So that one half of the mount will move north and the other half southward. Jesus will physically return to earth. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And I, along with many, many others, believe that the second coming of Christ is divided into two different events that are separated in time. 
The first stage is the rapture when Jesus comes for his church. It could happen at any time, and it is without any sign. It could happen before we finish. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Bible's very clear. The rapture's going to happen. Jesus is going to come get us. We're going to meet him in the clouds. And he is going to protect us from the wrath to come. We wait for Jesus to come get us. The second coming will be preceded by all kinds of signs. The entire tribulation period is full of all kinds of signs. We've been talking about them. And the same event can't be both signless and full of signs. So what happens is the second coming of Christ is in two stages. Let me just make sure it's really clear to you what's the difference between these two stages. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. At his return, he comes to earth. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At the return, he comes with his saints. At the rapture, believers depart the earth. At the return, unbelievers are taken away from the earth. At the rapture, Christ claims his bride. At the return, Christ comes with his bride. At the rapture, God gathers his own. At the return, angels gather the elect. At the rapture, Christ comes to reward. At the return, Christ comes to judge. Rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It is a new revelation. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Return is talked about in the Old Testament over and over and over. That the Messiah would come one day. Rapture is a time of blessing and comfort. Return is a time of destruction and judgment. Rapture involves church-age believers only. The return involves Israel and all the Gentile nations. Rapture will occur in a moment in the blink of an eye. And only his own will see him. So when we're raptured, we're the only ones that will see him. At his return, everybody will see him. It will be evident from the east to the west. Nobody on earth will not know that he has returned. In the rapture, Christ is described as coming as a bright morning star. In the return, he comes as the son of righteousness. So clearly the rapture and the return are two different events that are separated by time. For those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, his rapture could occur at any moment. It is imminent. He comes because he wants to protect his bride, his church, from the wrath that is to come. So I believe in a pre-trib rapture because of the way the church is mentioned in Revelation. And also because of the rapture and the return and the difference between the two. Another reason I believe in a pre-trib rapture is that we are exempt from divine wrath. Before we consider that, we have to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of the tribulation? Why, Why is there a tribulation? What's the purpose? The reason God takes mankind through the tribulation is twofold. One, to show Israel that he really is the true Messiah and to give them a chance to repent and turn back to him as a nation. Second, is to pour out his wrath on sin and destroy Satan and to bring justice to the world.
The tribulation is not about Gentiles. Our time will be over. The tribulation is about the Jewish nation recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. The tribulation is about God protecting and bringing 144,000 Jewish people, men, to be witnesses to proclaim the truth to the Jewish nation, who will also be associated with two witnesses who will have supernatural ability to do that. The focus of the tribulation is Jerusalem. The focus of the tribulation is the Jewish people. The focus is to get them to turn back to Jesus and to turn away from the Antichrist. Jeremiah 36. Why has every face turned pale? Alas, the day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, that's Israel, yet he shall be saved out of it. In Revelation 12, it picturesquely describes a woman who gives birth and has to flee due to persecution during the tribulation. The context shows that the woman is Israel. And again, the battle of Armageddon is against Israel. The Mag, Magog war that we talked about against Israel. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed during these battles. The text is clear that the purpose of the tribulation is the redemption of Jewish people. So why are the Jewish people the object of the tribulation? Well, for one, Satan hates the Jewish people. They're the people that protected the word. They're the people who brought forth the Messiah. And he wants to do anything he can do to destroy the Jewish people and to keep them from recognizing the true Messiah. Second, God knows that for the Jewish people to accept Jesus as the Messiah, they have to be brought so low that they look for other alternatives. And eventually the Bible says things will get so bad that they'll recognize Jesus is the Messiah. And they will cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will recognize him as their Messiah. The tribulation is for Israel's redemption and punishment, the wrath of God being poured out on unbelievers. There's no role for the church in that time. There's no purpose for the church to fit into that scenario. And the reason I believe there's no purpose for us being there is we've been taken away. People often consider those who support pre-trib as, as just a bunch of uh, uh, scared, uh, scaredy cats that are afraid of the tribulation. Can I just say I'm scared of the tribulation? Sign me up. I, I don't want to be here. I admit that up front. Many people say that we've come up with this view just to keep us from having to be here during the world's trouble and that it's arrogant to think that somehow there's going to be a generation that doesn't have to go through this. That of all the believers who've ever lived, we somehow get the pleasure, if we're that generation, to not have to go through the tribulation or tribulations or tough times. That the rapture will pull us out. We don't even have to experience death. But the reason I support it is it's the best view from the stand of Scripture. First of all, nobody on this planet escapes a form of tribulation and trials during their lifetime. But the Bible distinguishes the difference between our tribulations and the tribulation. Jesus says it will be like nothing we've ever seen before. He's very specific about it. We all suffer things in our lives and sometimes they're the result of Satan's influence in our world. But the tribulation that comes at end times is straight from God. 
And it is the wrath of God being poured out as a righteous, holy God against sin. It's God's wrath being poured out on an unbelieving world that is continuing to stiff arm him, even though he keeps revealing himself over and over and begging them to come home. True believers in Christ during the church age were told in Revelation 3.10, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of the trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on earth. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9 says, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Ephesians 5.6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. It is clear in Scripture that God's wrath is not for his church. It doesn't make sense if you think about it. It doesn't make sense that God's people would need to endure his wrath. Part of what salvation means is that Jesus came to the cross to save us from his wrath. That's why he came. It's been God's pattern not to judge the righteous, but to judge the wicked. Lot and his family were protected and rescued from Sodom. Enoch's rapture to heaven before the flood indicates that God has a principle of foreshadowing that he will take the righteous away before he has to turn his wrath upon people who deserve it. Why? What is it about the tribulation that necessitates our absence from that time on earth? The book of Revelation refers to God's wrath over seven times. It commences with the first seal and it ends with the second coming. What purpose does Jesus have in allowing his bride to suffer through the worst time in human history? What husband would do that? I can't imagine a man leaving his bride in the midst of death and destruction and disease and terror and fear, even if he knew somehow she was protected. Particularly since the wrath of God at the end times is a pouring out on everybody except the bride. Both pre-tribulation and mid-tribulation supporters agree that the church, the bride of Christ, will be protected from the time of God's wrath. Post-tribulation supporters believe that we will live through it, but will somehow be supernaturally not affected by it. So the key question for us is, when does the wrath of God start? I mean, if the Bible's really clear that believers aren't going to go through the wrath of God, when, when does that happen? Does it start with the beginning of the tribulation? Does it start in the middle of the tribulation? Is it afterwards? I mean, at what point when we read the Bible do we go, wow, I think tribulation has started. So as we look at these next slides, that's what I want you to ask yourself. I'm going to walk through just briefly. We're going to go through this in more detail later. But I want you to ask yourself, the question I want you to answer this time is, when do I think people on earth will understand that the tribulation has started? Okay. So the first thing that's going to happen according to Revelation are the seven seal judgments. 
Okay, and in the seven sealed judgments, the, the white horse comes, that's the Antichrist, he will be revealed. The red horse comes, that's war. It's followed by the black horse, which is famine. Then it's followed by the pale horse with his pestilence of a quarter of the world's population. Then there's the martyrdom of the saints, those who died during the tribulation. And then there are heavenly signs where the stars fall and the blood turns them. And all kinds of things are happening around the world. Earthquakes and lightning and, and the world is being shaken at its core. Those are the seal judgments. The Bible then says after the seal judgments, there will be the trumpet judgments. A third of the trees are burned up with the first trumpet. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of ships and people on the sea are destroyed. A third of the water turns bitter. A third of the sun and moon doesn't shine. Locusts are released. The 200 million man army comes. The kingdom of God is declared. The seventh trumpet. After the trumpet comes the bold judgments. Sores afflict everybody who takes the mark of the beast. The sea turns to blood. Everything in the ocean dies. Rivers turn to blood. Mankind is scorched by the sun and blasphemes God. The beast's seat of government is afflicted. The Euphrates is dried up. The world's armies gather to Armageddon. And the earth is utterly shaken to the point that it barely holds together. And then at the end of the bold judgments, Jesus returns. So when you look at those judgments, which is basically Revelation 4 through 18... When does the tribulation start? When is God's wrath beginning to be poured out on the world? Well, pre-tribulation people believe that the rapture occurs before any of it happens because the person who opens the seal is Jesus himself, and the very first seal is his judgment on the earth. Mid-tribulation people say that, no, it doesn't happen until after the, the trumpet, the seventh trumpet. That's mid-tribulation. Three and a half years into what we call the tribulation, the great tribulation starts, and that's when God is going to take his people home before it gets really bad. Post-tribulation say, no, we're going to be here for all of it. And then Jesus will come. Remember that we all agree that God will protect his church from the wrath. We'll either be protected or we'll be absent. Let me show you something that I think is important. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. First note that Jesus says this time of testing is for the whole world. He is talking about the one time in history where the entire world is under testing, and that's the tribulation. Note that what he says here is very important. I will keep you from, not I will get you through. He's very specific. I will keep you from that time. Not only that, but he, here's what he says. He promises not to keep us from the trial, but to keep us from the time of the trial. We are protected from the period of time of the trials, not the trials themselves. This verse indicates that we will be removed prior to the time of the trials that affect the entire world. Finally, Jesus tells us that he's coming quickly. Putting these together, the Lord has delivered his people from the time of trial worldwide. And he's coming for them at the rapture. Next reason. The removal of the restrainer. 
Paul talks about a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Some of the people at Thessalonica thought that the, the tribulation had already started. And that the day of the Lord had come. The second coming of Christ was upon them. There were people teaching falsely. And so Paul addresses them. And he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord, the day of the return of Jesus to earth. Paul tells them, it hasn't come. Here's how you know. Okay, so obviously this is important for us. Let no one deceive you. For the day will not come. In other words, Jesus' second coming, the physically coming back to earth until the rebellion comes, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who tries to exalt himself against every other God and goes into the worship where he takes a seat at the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. He says, look, Jesus isn't coming back till those things happen. The Antichrist reveals himself. His lawlessness becomes worldwide. He enters the temple. He declares himself as God. That's going to happen before Jesus physically returns to earth. So what's keeping that from happening? Paul says, look, there's a restrainer. There's something keeping this from occurring. So he tells him, do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, the things of the world are already starting. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. That's interesting. That's a person. Not a philosophy, not a thought. He. He is restraining it. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The restrainer is God himself in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is what's keeping the Antichrist right now from having his way on earth. So what's keeping this from all happening right now? You are. You and every other member of the body of Christ who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the church of Jesus Christ is the restraining force on earth that refuses to allow the man of lawlessness to have his way. It's true that the Holy Spirit is the real restrainer, but the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, and the believer's body is the temple of the Spirit of God. Put all the believers in all the world together, the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, and we are a formidable restraining force for the things of evil. Only the Spirit of God is powerful enough to hold back and restrain the forces of evil. The rapture is going to change everything, though. When the rapture occurs, the Spirit-indwelled church and its restraining influence is going to be removed from the earth. That will release the world to sin like it's never sinned before. Christians who stand for civic righteousness and morality and the law will no longer be present exerting their influence. The church's salt and light will be extracted from the earth. 
And for a time at least, unsaved people will hold government offices and Satan will be able to put his plan in force across the world because of that. Evil will erupt and it will expand unchecked beyond anything ever known in the human history. It'll be like the opening of a huge dam of sin. And the church of God no longer here to hold it back anymore. The world will be inundated with evil in an unimaginable scope and severity. However, when we are raptured and taken back to heaven, the Holy Spirit is not absent from the earth. He will be present working through the people that are here, the witnesses, the 144,000. He'll be revealing Christ to those Jewish people and to others who, who are now coming back to Christ. He'll be empowering people, but it'll be like a reverse of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit will not be indwelt in people during that tribulation time, but he will be active as he was in the Old Testament. The convicting, the drawing, the regenerating ministry of the Holy Spirit is essential for anyone when they're saved, and He will be present in that process. But Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not pervade against my church. I don't believe Satan can have the influence that he wants to have if the church is here. Because Jesus has already told us the gates of hell can't prevail against us. In order for things to move forward in the end times, the church has to be absent. The Antichrist could never get his influence through the world if, if it's obvious who he is and what he's trying to do. He needs an audience that's not going to oppose him. And there will be no doubt during the tribulation that the gates of hell are being opened full force. Next reason why I believe in a pre-trib rapture is what's called imminency. Numerous passages in the New Testament speak of the unexpected and immediate, surprising return of Jesus for his church. I could go through them. There are dozens of them where Jesus says, I'm coming back. You better expect it. It's going to be like a thief in the night. The Lord is near. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await our Savior to come. Over and over and over, Jesus tells us it could be at any minute. The believers in Acts believed it could be at any moment. So much so that they quit working. They just started looking at the sky. And Paul had to tell them, look, if you don't work, you don't eat. Because while you're waiting for him to come back, there's work to be done. They thought it could happen at any minute. Other prophetic events don't have to take place before the rapture. Without warning, the rapture could occur at any moment. And if there are signs required for the rapture, then it's not imminent anymore. Think about this. I mean, if we say the rapture, for instance, is mid-trib, then certain things have to happen before the rapture. If we say the rapture occurs after the tribulation, then certain things have to happen before the rapture can occur. In fact, we can list them. There's 21 of them that we just read. Only the pre-trib position allows an imminent, any moment, signless return of Jesus Christ for his church. Only those who believe in a pre-trib rapture can honestly say, Jesus could come back today. And more important, only they can live like it. Other views can't. 
The imminency of the rapture would fill us with hope and anticipation and motivation to godly living. It should move us to witness to people and to have a sense of urgency and to not store ourselves things up here for today, but to live for the future. It should allow us to use our resources for God's purposes instead of our own. It should make us study the Bible and pray and look for Jesus to come every day and to make sure the people around us know it. That's how Jesus wanted his church to live. But if we believe in a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture, we can just wait around until the Antichrist shows up. And then we can get serious as we get closer and closer because the signs will be obvious. It's imminency that I think is one of the strongest arguments for a pre-trib rapture. It's the only argument that keeps us ready. It keeps us on our toes and it fits with what those in Acts believed, what Paul himself believed, and what others believed. The last reason why I believe is what's called the blessed hope. Paul described the rapture to the Thessalonians. and Look at what he said. Encourage one another with these words. To Titus, he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about this. If Paul believed in anything other than a pre-trib rapture, why are they encouraged by the idea that Jesus would come back? I mean, how encouraged can you be knowing that there's going to be three and a half years of hell being poured out on earth before he comes back, or maybe seven years? See, they were concerned that it already happened. He said, no, I want to encourage you. It hasn't happened yet. These things will happen first. But the encouragement is you won't be here. Could you honestly get excited about the rapture if you knew you had to determine and spend a certain amount of time on earth prepping for 19 judgments of revelation before the mid-tribulation? But Paul told the Thessalonians, be encouraged, it could happen at any moment. For this we declare for you a word from the Lord, that we who are alive will be left until the coming of the Lord. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The rapture's coming, he says. Encourage one another. So for these and several other reasons, I believe that the rapture, according to Scripture, is going to be pre-tribulation. Church isn't mentioned in Revelation, and I believe is mentioned in heaven. There's a sense of imminency that has to happen. God's wrath is poured out on people other than the church, and Jesus came to spare us from the wrath that's pretty obvious. The church has to be removed from the world in order for the Antichrist to have full control and to be able to do the things that the Bible says will happen. And we were supposed to be encouraged with the idea of the wrath, of the rapture. When I think about the urgency, the sense that it could happen at any day, it moves me to walk closer with Christ. It moves me to read the Bible. It moves me to have a sense of urgency and a motivation to witness for Him, to not put down deep roots here, but rather to realize that we're just not home yet, to not worry about my earthly tent to have peace about today and tomorrow, and to keep my priorities straight. Any other view of the rapture places signs ahead of it and gives me a sense of passiveness, complacency, and probably lethargy. 
If I'm mid-trib, I can wait for the Antichrist to declare himself in the temple of God. And then I'll know. If I'm post-trib, I can wait till I see Jesus in the clouds. Those views don't align with the attitude and expectation of the early church in Acts or what Jesus describes himself. Paul instructed people to repetitively live and expect that return at any time. And I don't know for sure that a pre-trib rapture is the right view, but to me it best aligns with Scripture. And for that reason I embrace it. And it helps me to live the way I think Jesus wants me to live during the end times with a sense of urgency, eager to go home, and anticipating that Jesus could come back for us at any moment, at any time. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you shared with us in your word. I honestly wish you'd made it just a little bit clearer. But for those who want to dive in, for those who want to look deep, there are mysteries that are revealed just like you promised. So God, we know you're coming back. And God, my prayer is that we're ready. It's great to sit around and talk about end times and we'll be pre or post or mid. The question is, are we ready? The question is, are we living with a sense of urgency and a burden for those who don't know you? When we read about the tribulation, our first thought should be, God, how do we protect people from this? God, you didn't have to reveal to us what's going to happen, but you did. Because you want us to live a changed life in reflection of those truths that are going to happen. So God, I thank you that you gave us this picture, but it's horrible. So help us, God, to begin to process with you what you really want us doing during this time. If we are the generation that is to be raptured, what would you have us do right now? And if we're not, God, the moment we close our eyes to this world, we'll be with you. So what would you have us do right now? God, I pray for those who don't know you. I pray for those who are pretty sure they'll be left behind. I pray for those that are hoping your word is not right for the first time ever. I pray for those who've been blinded and can't see. I pray that your spirit would begin to reveal truth and they would begin to see the truth and help us, God, to show it to them without arrogance, to show it to them out of humility, recognizing that we've been saved from something horrible and that they can be saved too. So God, this week, for those people that we know who don't know you, would you just burden us to the point that we can't sleep? Would you burden us to the point that they are on our mind constantly, that we are carrying their burden because we know what's going to happen to them? God, would you not let us rest until we address that? God, the, the disciples in Acts, when they recognized that you could come back at any time, the one thing they prayed for after receiving the Holy Spirit was boldness. God, give us boldness today. We just love you and we thank you. We ask it all in Jesus' name.